everybody. Welcome to this episode of BeelerCast. We've got a special episode today, and it's a couple reasons that today's episode is special. One, you'll probably notice, I am not Rob Beeler. We actually don't even have Rob Beeler with us today. Um, we've got two members of Team Beeler, and we have taken over the podcast. So Nicholas Treveri, who I like to think of as our social and community man behind the scenes, and then myself, Melissa Chapman. I'm collaborator uh, with Beeler Tech, all things Beeler Tech, and my pronouns are she and her. The second thing that makes today special is we're going to be focusing today on the revenue operations barometer research that we just did. And so with us, we have Ian Gibbs, the research and insight specialist with CoLab Media Consulting. Thanks so much for joining us, Ian. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, looking forward to it. Lovely, lovely. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in here. So um, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself before we get into the barometer? Yeah, yeah, sure. My favorite thing, talking about myself. Um, look, it's great to be everyone. So my name's Ian Gibbs. Um, I am a, I'm a research data insight professional by trade. I have been um, working with the guys at CoLab for the last few years to bring our RevOps barometer to market. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, I, I specialize in kind of like media and advertising measurement and anything related to that. And of course, AdOps very much relates to that. Um, but my background, I mean, I sort of work with a number of different clients, but my background to that, I mean, a few years ago, um, I left The Guardian in 2016. I spent about 10 years at The Guardian heading up their commercial insight team. So my background is very much publisher side. Um, didn't work in the AdOps team, but I worked very closely with the AdOps team, which is why I can really relate to lots of the challenges that we're going to be talking through today. Thank you. That's great. You know, I don't think I ever knew that exactly, uh, which <laughs> knew that much about your background. So could you tell us a little bit about, give us the overview of the RevOps barometer, right? Uh, Beeler Tech has been participating and helping, and that has changed a little bit over the years. But if you can let everybody know on the podcast kind of what it is and the history of it, and then yeah. let's jump into some of our findings. Okay. So, um, yeah, look, the RevOps barometer has been running for the last uh, last, last three years. It's uh, well, it was an annual survey. It's now a biannual survey, which is good because it means that you know it's picking up traction and credibility, and people are willing to participate uh, twice a year rather than once a year now. Um, and over the last few years, we have interviewed over four hundred publishers globally. Uh, the most recent wave in the second half of this year, H two twenty one. Uh, we had 176 responses uh, from you know, from that many publishers, which was which is a record, which is great. And essentially, what we're doing is we are we are we are we're looking into the, the sort of attitudes and opinions of RevOps and AdOps professionals. Uh, we sometimes use the terms interchangeably. Actually, I'm not sure we should, but anyway. Um, and we're looking at the, the sort of business challenges they face, their priorities for the coming year, and the opportunities that they see in the market as well. And and it's um. You know, it's, it's a sort of experienced pool of respondents. About two thirds of them have over 10 years experience in ADOPS. Um, they have a good global spread. Um, I have to say in the last wave, uh, 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 the majority were based in the US, although there was a good uh, global spread of responsibilities. Over half had global responsibilities um, for ADOPS and RevOps um, and 36% had sort of a mere responsibility. So it, it, is, a, it is a good global spread. And probably the, the final thing I should say about it in terms of who we're talking to is um, about half of our, the publishers we talk to are digital pure plays, but the other half are um, 
Uh, I was going to use the term legacy media, but I hate the term legacy media. I've been watching too much succession recently. Sorry. Um, heritage media. You know, it's a combination of like print Fair. and TV and, and those sorts of organizations. So it's a nice cross section that, that we're talking to. Thank you. That's great. All right. Well, let's jump in. Um, I think we did a top five, right? Kind yeah. of key takeaways. So why don't why don't we start there, Ian, with you kind of taking the audience through what those were? Yeah, no problem. Okay, so um, in terms of, I guess, our top five highlights, you know, let's walk through them one by one. And, and, you know, you guys let me know what you think. But I think, you know, what is what is very obvious, and we see this every quarter, we have the highest levels of agreement that we've ever had with this statement is that programmatic continues to redefine the adopts uh, 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 sort of role and skill set. Um, publishers almost sort of unanimously agree that, that, that their, their role is changing because of programmatic. 95% of people, uh, publishers agree with that. Um, and, you know, if you look at all the other challenges that people face, it's kind of obvious why. They're just being asked to not, not, not just do more with less, but also just have a broader range of like responsibilities. They have to handle vast amounts of data. Uh, they have to deal with um, issues like ad fraud and privacy and consent things that they might not have even ever expected to have to have dealt with when they got into the industry, say, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. So they are, I think there is certainly a sense of being stretched and having to pick up lots of different skills as a result. Yeah, and I think the piece for me that's so interesting and, and the publishers that I've worked with in the past were largely direct sale publishers, right? We did yeah. some programmatic, but we weren't primarily programmatic. We weren't over 50% programmatic, mm -hmm. but that the fact that header bidding came out, what, six or seven years ago, and it's still continuing to change the role of AdOps professionals, it just, that's so interesting to me. It seems like it just keeps getting more technical and more detailed and more players. And for me, it's a very complicated space, but I just think that's interesting. Yeah, and do you know what? It's funny because some of the thing, the issues that we talk about, I mean, they almost fall within, I suppose, it, it's almost within the power of an adopts or revolts professional or even their manager to help do something about this, upskill in some of those areas. Some of the issues that I've identified report, you know, I kind of think you have to say, well, these are bigger, broader market issues that the yeah. average professional can't really deal with. And that's actually one of our second findings is that, you know, concerns around like, you know, the GAFA group, the, the Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, or the, the digital duopoly just of Google and Facebook, you know, it, it, show, it shows sort of no signs of abating, you know, very few respondents believe that regulation is having any effect on them. But at the same time, I think there's probably a sense, you know, what can you really do about it? You've got to focus on what you can do something about, right? Uh, absolutely. And I just, the, this one's a complete mystery to me about how it will actually shake out and what's what's really going to happen, right? I mean, I try to keep up with the news on this, especially around Google and the changes with Apple and and what that means for identity and privacy kind of in our space. But it's it's this is a tough one, right? Yeah. To predict. So yeah, I'm not surprised people feel that way. I just called it the GAFA group. I should call it the Gamma group, of course, shouldn't I now? Now that Facebook will rebrand to Meta. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> true, um, true. And I didn't catch yeah. it. <laughs> um, Good the, call, uh, Ian. So, yeah. Um, so I mean, the, the third one, this will probably come as no surprise to people. Uh, uh, you know, we have seen sort of plummeting levels of preparedness for a sort of post third party cookie world. Um, it, the majority of publishers, and I just mean over 50%, do say that they are ready for a world uh, without third party cookies. They're ready for the depreciation of third party cookies. 
But the numbers absolutely plummeted. We had 77% saying they're prepared in the first half of 2021, only 54% in the latter half of 21. And, you know, I know we've got, oh, I don't know, maybe until 23 before Google turned the taps off, but I don't know. It's, it's really starting to hit home, I think, uh, you know, the impact that it can have on publishers' businesses. So I can't help but wonder that, the you know, to go from the 70s to the 50s, right? So before Google gave the extension, right, the Chrome extension of the deprecation of cookies, we thought, okay, we think we're about, you know, about 70% of us think we're ready. And now only 50%, well, it's a little more than 50, I know, think we're ready. And so I can't help but wonder, is that because we've gotten smarter about all the things we might not know? Or did were we just overly confident in each one i mean i don't know that you can answer that but it's yeah. it's, it's a seriously interesting question to me because i expected to see some change there but that's a really big difference i know and you know one of the frustrating things that researchers like me often say when they're presenting is that like you know good research can answer some questions but it often just prompts 10 more questions <laughs> I think Fair. this is absolutely instance where it's done that but i think you know and i sort of hate to use donald rumsfeld language but it's like you know it's class you, you you're right perhaps it's perhaps it's about unknown unknowns you know actually the sort of level of our knowledge around this has been highlighted or lack of knowledge over the last six months so maybe that's having an impact yeah. Fair um you know, at the same time, of course, it's linked. I mean, proving the quality and performance inventory is a top priority. You know, with with third party cookies on the way out, if we can't be assured that our ad is going to be targeted at, you know, the person that we want it to be targeted at, we have to prove quality in other ways. Um, I think, uh, and we'll see later on as well, that like optimizing ad performance is a top priority in the same space. And we could talk a little bit more about this later on, perhaps. But for me, I think, you know, the question is, what does quality look like? Uh, is it quality in like ad delivery? Are we talking about, you know, low fraud and high viewability? Or are we talking about quality in terms of like outcomes for advertisers? Because at the end of the day, they want to shift the dial on sales or brand metrics. So, so yeah, bit to one pick there, I think, as well. I think that's that's a great call out um, and maybe something we should clarify in future waves, right, is what, what do people mean when they say quality in that case? Because I certainly know I had an assumption going into that. And I think... I agree with you. I think this is just the pressure behind this is only going to grow as third party cookies go away. And I mean, it's, you know, been table stakes for a, certainly a while, but I think it's just turning up the volume on this area for publishers, um, which kind of brings us to the last. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you hit the last point. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, have, I have some commentary. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the final point was just, you know, a fraud obviously remains a challenge yet to be solved. I mean, we do see quite a lot of respondents, 77 percent of respondents say that they think that industry initiatives are actually having like a positive impact on fraud. Um, and that number declined slightly from last quarter. It was about 81 percent, but it's not that significant. It's around that kind of high 70s, low 80s mark. Um, a bit surprising for me. I mean, you know. The war on ad fraud is not over, but it, you know, there's a little bit of optimism amongst respondents. Um, but yeah, I think even if you even if you think, it, 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 I guess, you know, industry initiatives are having like a small marginal incremental sort of positive impact, doesn't necessarily mean, I guess, you think that the uh, that the war is over. The war is over. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just when I think about this whole picture, uh, and I put my publisher hat on, having been at a publisher for a very long time. Um, I feel like this is the most complicated time to be a publisher that it ever has been, right? So 
yes, you need to continue to have the table stakes and provide your advertisers the value they want. And there's much more measurement and uh, closer eagle eyes on that sort of thing. And then you got these big, huge initiatives around identity and privacy that we really have to tackle that can't generally be tackled in an ad ops team, right? They're cross organization initiatives that really need to be handled. And often they're driven by ad ops, but they can't be solved just by ad ops. And then, gosh darn it, we still have to keep dealing with fraud on top of that, right? Like, I wish we had fraud fraud solved because I feel like so somebody's still breaking into your house while you're trying to figure out how to make it to the moon right um it's just it's a complicated time to be a publisher revenue ops or ad ops person right now it is and it's also like information overload I mean like you know as a, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn I'm sure we all do and you know there is a lot of conflicting opinion about it you have you know the industry body-led movements around it You've got lots of independent organizations and consultants, you know, with their own uh, solutions as well. It's um, there's a lot to unpick, especially when you are short of time, quite frankly, as, as an adult professional. Agreed. Agreed. So I think that's a good kind of pivot to a question that I have for you. So one of the things that we've done in this research is we have this concept of a maturity index, and I think that's helpful for uh, publishers to compare themselves and think about kind of where they not compare themselves in a negative way, but to think about where they are, where their organization is in the overall. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what the maturity index is and how we set it and all the good color behind it, please? Yeah, sure. So the, the maturity is there's lots of different ways in which you can split the data. We, we, we talked about some of them already, you know, like region and like type of business and you know whether it's high or programmatic uh, uh, usage business um but you know sometimes those kind of like binary uh ways of splitting the data um might sort of lose some nuance in terms of how we segment out different um d different publishers and media organizations so this is where we came up with this idea of maturity and i like the the, the definition of maturity i'll be honest it's slightly evolved over the last couple of years but we're in quite a good place with it now and what i quite like about our current definition is that um we only use three questions to define maturity now which from a sort of nerdy market research point of view the fewer questions you ask to get to the the, uh, the end point you know is a good thing um, and so literally, it is about the extent to which our respondents agree with these three statements. And one of them is about uh, the publisher having an effective suite of technology to support um, all ad operations. The other one is about people agreeing that their current ad tech stack is comprehensive and ensures that revenue is maximized. So they're, they're quite sort of technology focused. Um, and then the third one is, is the extent to which they agree that their business is building diverse um, revenue streams. And that, you know, that could be sort of diverse geographically, or it could be diverse in terms of, you know, we've got ad revenue and we've got subs revenue over here and a whole suite of other products. So diversification is key as well. And that kind of splits our sort of our, 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 our sample pool roughly into thirds of like, you know, high maturity, medium maturity and low maturity. And the point is, it, it really does pull the data apart. So, I mean, those of you who have our reports, you know, I'll sort of refer you to, to, to page 11. And if I, I might just share um, that, that page quickly, just so I can uh, uh, show everyone what I'm referring to. Um, hopefully you can see that okay. Yes. Um, so what we've got here, um, some real differences between high and low maturity groups. So for example, 80% of high maturity publishers say that they're well prepared for depreciation third-party cookies 
versus just 50% of low maturity groups. Um, and, and similarly, you know, high maturity groups say that, you know, they're more likely to say they have a, a greater ability to collect and monetize third party data. They're more likely to say they're winning the battle on ad fraud. So they are more sophisticated in that sense. The, the really telling difference though, um, it, it comes down to like one core factor, which is around senior management buy-in. Like pretty much all of the high maturity groups say that senior management understands their area of the business. You know, it's hands-on. It really does understand the investment levels required to maximize the, the potential of Adam RevOps. Only, a, I mean, only 36% of low maturity groups uh, agree with that. So I think that is really telling. And I'm sure, you know, there'll be people listening to this podcast who will think, you know, who will have differing levels of opinions about, you know, I guess the line that they've got into the C-suite and the confidence the C-suite has in them. And, you know, th- what's quite good about the, the, the RevOps barometer is that people aren't afraid to leave us not lots of comments, which is a good sign of engagement, lots of sort of open text comments. And, you know, we've had comments about sort of under communication, workload bandwidth, expectations from the, from the C-suite, you know, they see the word programmatic, they think automation. So everything should be nice and easy. We know that couldn't be further from the truth sometimes. Uh, and, you know, and if we have, if we are stretched as professionals, we need help prioritizing as well. So I think, yeah, this is a real distinction between high and low maturity groups that um, I, I think has a big bearing um, on, on how, I suppose, ad, ad ops and rev ops opportunities are sort of maximized as it were. Yeah, and agreed. And it's probably uh, directly impacts how those teams feel too, right? They probably can feel that well in their teams. If you don't have that good line and good understanding, you spend a lot of time either being misunderstood or explaining yourself um, and trying to help justify things, which is part of the reason, I mean, we do this um, report, right, is to give our publishers insights into what other publishers are doing which helps them make informed decisions and also helps them inform internally within their own teams. Yeah, and there is definitely a sort of benchmarking role for this report. You know, where do you sit in that maturity index? Are you high, medium or low? And do you face the same challenges and others? And what will it take to get to high maturity? I think, you know, we haven't we didn't show it in the most recent report, but the report before last, we did show that high maturity was also linked to high revenue expectations as well. So, you know, there, there are tangible, positive revenue implications for being a high maturity business. I think the other thing I'd say as well, and this is on page 14 of the report, um, uh, it tends to be that low maturity, well, high and medium maturity businesses are twice as likely as low maturity businesses to have a, like a, a sort of good degree of confidence in their current or intended identity solution. So, you know, going back to the whole depreciation of third party cookies. Now, I mean, you can look at this two ways, you know, high maturity businesses, great that they're more confident. We still got less than half of our respondents saying they're very confident for those who aren't, what are the issues? And, you know, perhaps this goes back to this whole, like, you know, um, people sort of get starting to get a better sense of, of what they don't know now and probably what is clear is that there are lots of identity solutions on the market now and it's quite perhaps it's hard to unpick which is the most appropriate one um we all know it's there, there aren't really any plug and play solutions out there um, it takes a lot of time and effort to implement them and also we've had comments from our respondents as well about scalability so yeah high medium maturity more likely to have confidence in low maturity groups and identity solutions but there's a long way to go i'd say for both groups Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, And I think this lines up, it kind of ties back to what I was saying earlier, right? So having a good identity and privacy strategy is not an ad ops function, right? So if you 
you need to be working with the C-suite or other teams within your organization. And if you're high maturity, based on our research, right, you have a better line into the, the executive levels of your company. So you probably have a better conversation around identity and privacy. So that all feels right to me. And uh, I shouldn't say right, but it, I'm not surprised by that. Let me say it that yeah, way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, the, the thing about maturity as well is I think it's very easy to think, oh, well, oh, like a digital only business must be a mature business. And like, you know, heritage media must be, you know, uh, low, low maturity. Um, sorry, digital must be high maturity legacy, so low maturity. That's not the case. You know, and that's why we produce this this maturity index, because if it just told us exactly the same thing as another segmentation, there's no point doing it. So, yeah, you know, don't think it's as simple as digital versus non-digital. And frankly, if I think back to my time at The Guardian, you know, we, uh, we we did, you know, have quite a sophisticated adopt team and good buying from senior management. You know, that is a that's a heritage business. But, you know, at the same time, they probably class themselves still as high maturity. Got it. Got it. Well, let's pivot a little bit. So one of the things, um, you know, is that we do with Barometer is we're gathering feedback from all over the world, right? And then um, you and the team are actually cutting that data and looking at some of the regional differences. So can you talk to us about what you found there? Yeah, it, I mean, look, having sort of run lots of like multinational or global research projects, one thing to be honest from a researcher's point of view is that people in different regions do answer research in different ways sometimes. Some people are more positive than others. Some people nationally are just more positive than others. Um, and what, 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 what we'll always see, what we've always seen is that our EMEA and rest of world respondents tend to record higher levels of agreement, tend to be a little bit more positive than North America and US respondents. That said, the gap has widened in the second half of 2021. So I think there, you know, there is also there's a real divergence. It's not just a research effect. There is there is a real divergence in confidence. Now, you know, so for example, I mean, what's a good example? You know, that's what I was getting. Yeah, thank you. Three three quarters of um, sort of EMEA and rest of world publishers say that they're well prepared for the appreciation of third party cookies versus just fifty nine percent of US and North America publishers. Um, you know, we've got seventy nine percent of uh, EMEA is saying that their business um, has seen an increase in subscription revenues versus just 56% in, in US and North America. Now, you, you can kind of go through each of these points, start to create hypotheses for each of them. I mean, yeah. from, the, from the subscription revenues point of view, I mean, obviously in the US, there's just a lot more competition for eyeballs. There's a lot more competition for subs. And there's only so much disposable income your average consumer has. They're not going to be able to you know, fund 10 different subscriptions a month. Um, you know, our EMEA respondents are all based often are based in different markets where there is less competition. So yeah. it does make sense that they would see higher, like a larger increase in those subs revenues. But um, yeah, it's interesting unpicking those differences. Do you have do you have any insights? And if you don't, maybe it's something we look at in the future. But why um, uh, outside of the U.S. there's more positivity around the whole identity privacy piece? The first one you mentioned there. Well, you know, it, it is a hard one to be. I, I do wonder, frankly, and, you know, it's, I don't want to sound too disparaging, but perhaps there is just less, perhaps it, it comes back to this point you're making earlier, Melissa, like, you know, perhaps they just don't know what they don't know yet. I don't know. Um, or perhaps there are fewer vendors to select from. So actually the, the, the choice is, the, the choice seems like an easier one to make when dealing with um, with various issues. Uh, it, it's hard to say. I mean, it's Or maybe they're just more buttoned up. 
right? Yeah, <laughs> they actually yeah. are, right? <laughs> do, do you know, there is, there is one area where um, US publishers are more confident than, um, than EMEA, and that's in this idea of um, like cr cross-platform, cross-screen measurements. Um, I'm just trying to find the data point now. I can't actually find it in the report to talk about. But yeah, there is definitely more confidence in their ability to monetize uh, um, you know, monetize ad revenue across different screens and platforms. Mm -hmm. Much higher levels of agreement on that in, that in the US than, uh, than Amir in the rest of the world. I mean, I think one of the reasons are because you've got the legacy, t it's a legacy TV factor uh, in the US. I think we've probably got more bigger players in the US who, who obviously by necessity have to have to monetize a multi-screen approach. If we look at also um, like, uh, I guess some of the sort of, um, uh, cross cross screen sort of um industry measurement solutions being championed by advertisers and agencies project origin for example you know that is more advanced in a more advanced stage in the us than it is in the uk for example yeah, which would yeah. explain so i think there are some tangible reasons there but that's the one area where we see greater confidence in the us um, interesting yeah interesting um so when you look at the data Right. As a as a analyst and researcher, what was really surprising to you in this round of the research? Um, I mean, what's, what's, we, we've already so we've already discussed the kind of uh, the absolute drop off in people's sort of level of preparedness. I mean, that was a surprise. <laughs> That's the 20%, huge one, right? 20 percent. There's other things as well. I mean, like there has been a drop off in people saying that user data and privacy is well protected. Um, you know, we saw like about a year ago, we saw 77% agreement with that and dropped about 70% the first half of the year. It's down to 66%. Now, now the audience isn't for this isn't consumers, but if I was a consumer and I read that, I'd be a little bit worried. I was like, you know, uh, um, fair, fair. So, well, you know, but I, I have to ask why. And I think at the same time, you know, it's almost, uh, you know, it's almost correlated to people's just um, agreement that, that programmatic is changing the, the sort of the, the, the skill set. And lots of comments we're getting about how stretched people are. They can't possibly focus on anything. And I think potentially that is going to be to, to the detriment of some very important and you know, reputationally quite important business issues uh, like privacy. So I was, just, I was surprised to see that, but I think, you know, resource senior management buy-in are needed to address these sorts of issues because they, you know, they, they are of reputational concern. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and I'm so I'm both so thankful we got the extra time, right? So that everybody, but it's, it's a long slog for lots of publishers to get through, right? Lots of, yeah. lots of work, lots of time, and lots of options, right? Not just identity solutions, but overall business strategy, and how are you going to approach it? And what does that look like for your revenue? And how do you sell that through? And um, and that changes as we learn more, right? And hear more from the buying side about what they want to do. And that certainly doesn't seem settled yet, right? So there's a yeah. lot more to come there. I mean, with all of these things, you know, with the sort of ability to sort of store and monetize and collect fast first party data, you know, ready yourself for a post third party cookie world, dealing with privacy concerns. I, you know, publishers are probably looking at the vendor landscape and saying, you know, how do I have time to, to, to select the most appropriate solution? I mean, you know, when I talk to advertisers direct, they're asking about like the most appropriate identity solution, even those who have an in-house. And, you know, it's quite a minefield for them, but they just want to be able to make sure that they can speak the same language as their agencies who are speaking the same language as their publishers. So there is, yeah, I, I think marketers in general 
uh, need a lot of help sifting through the most appropriate solutions in these areas. And it's not saying which is better or worse. As we know, some solutions are just more appropriate than others. Absolutely. An email-based solution might be more appropriate for some and you know, so on and so forth. All depends on your business, right? And the data that you have, whether yeah. you're the mark on the marketer side or on the publisher side. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. All right, uh, I think my last question for you, Ian, is were there any, did you come across any insights that you felt like kind of busted any myths we might be dealing with in our community or in our industry? Yeah, do you know, actually, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to share the screen one more time, but I'm going to refer our listeners to, to, to slide to, to page 13 in the report, because, and, and to be honest, it, it kind of references what I was talking about earlier, that I do think that there is a myth that, you know, if you, if you're, a, if you're a digital pure play, you know, you are advanced, you are mature and, you know, heritage legacy media isn't and you know we couldn't what we found couldn't be further from the truth so actually to be fair um in north america so probably you know, us and canada so digital pure plays were actually quite mature they're also quite high pro programmatic users the print heritage publishers in the rest of the world were actually very mature as well uh and i think this is probably this is probably driven out of necessity more than a tv heritage business um, you know, of course, there are shifting nature and way consumers are, are obviously watching TV, but it's still massive in scale. Yeah. It's very different for a print publisher whose print, you know, print revenue is obviously falling off a cliff. By necessity, they have to have had to become a mature um, yeah. adults business. So I think that's an interesting uh, myth that has been busted. Um, and actually, some of the sort of lowest, the lowest maturity group are actually sort of um, a mere and rest of world TV heritage businesses. That's actually, interesting. Think, yeah, so I think they kind of, there is a sense that, you know, they're, they're just these huge sort of Goliaths who haven't necessarily needed to get up to speed yet, but they will need to. And especially, so if we look at that, that, that stat that we talked about earlier, that, um, you know, publishers in Amir are, uh, are not necessarily making the most of multi-screen monetization opportunities. Yes. This feeds into that. You know, they should be and, you know, they, they need to become more mature to do that. So I thought there's, there's some really interesting stuff there. So page 13 of the, the report I'm goes through that in more detail. But, yeah, plenty of myths to be busted there. Pure play digital does not necessarily mean you're the most mature and, and vice versa. Lovely, lovely. And by the way, and I know I know we're on a podcast, everybody, so you can't all see the slide. But this this matrix that Ian and the team put together is um, so useful to just get a good visual for kind of where where different organizations fall. And with that, I think we need to wrap up this session of our BeelerCast. So um, if anybody that's listening would like to download the report, you can go to collab-consulting.com forward slash research, um, and you'll find this research and uh, previous versions there. And for those of you out there, we are gonna be fielding H1 2022, probably starting in January. So everybody keep an eye out for that. Uh, the more people that participate, the better the research is. And everyone, all of our publishers that are respondents all receive a full copy of the report um, as soon as it's published. So, and um, Ian, I wanna thank you so much for your time today. This was really great. I always enjoy hearing you talk about the research. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been great that, you know, you guys have partnered with us on this as well. It's been good to see you over the last few years. Thank you. Thank you. And for everybody listening, thanks so much for listening to, to BeelerCast. Have a great one.